welcome aboard the Battleship Retention. I'm David Bax. Tyler Smith is on assignment. Joining me as guest co-host is longtime friend of the show and BP contributor Matt Warren. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for being here. Thank you. for. That was coming. a weird note to start on, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming all the way up uh, from where you live, um, which isn't near here, being vague. Long uh, Beach, California, folks. Oh, Shout Beach. it out. Yeah, LBC. Um, and uh, before we get into the show, I'd, it would be wrong of me not to address the fact that the Stanley Cup champions, <laughs> the Stanley Cup has finally come to St. Louis, Missouri, my hometown. The St. Louis Blues are Stanley Cup champions for the first time in their in their history in in fifty two seasons. If I'm doing the math right, uh, it's an incredible feeling. And it has happened. It is. Well, you were, you were saying before we started rolling about how hungover you've been all day, basically. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. It happened literally like 24 hours ago. Is when they uh, they won uh, just before 8 p.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time. And uh, yeah, I uh, spent the day kind of struggling. Had to you know had to go to work. I got through it. Yeah, but. Uh, yeah, I've well, you're, you're professionally motored through. Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> no one, no one smelled all the yield rustic in on you. <laughs> yeah, no, all day. <laughs> no, and I think even my boss was like, "I'm surprised you're here." <laughs> uh, I wore yeah. this hat in honor of you, actually. So. Uh, is that a St. Louis hat? No, it's actually a Salt Lake hat. Oh, I was gonna say Salt Lake City hat, but it's got the S and the L on there. Yeah, I was trying to think. Was that is that like the St. Louis like yeah. Eagles? Uh, early, early NHL. No, this uh, is a this is an Ebbets Vintage throwback. Salt Lake Bees Triple A baseball okay. hat. Yeah, so I like that company. What is it, Ebbets? Ebbets. Yeah. yeah, you you may know them from uh, intrusive sponsored Instagram posts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely. Uh, yeah, uh, or or like Google, like me looking up Ebbets once two years ago, <laughs> and Google still giving me ads for them uh, every time I use their their service. But uh, yeah, uh, it's uh, very exciting. I got very emotional. Um, when it happened, I was like kind of uh, teary eyed, and then I went home from the bar and spent the rest of the night just watching like every like post game interview mm-hmm. and like recaps and stuff, and uh, uh, yeah, doing a lot of celebrating. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know this. This is a new feeling for me. The Blues have literally never won before, and that's been my team. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm in a great mood. And, you know, today at work, when I was watching those recaps, I was doing so uh, at my desk on my lunch break or whatever, using my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. You see, tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Uh, Tyler and I both use them each and every day of our lives. Uh, Like I said, today I was watching hockey highlights um, (laughs) and, and stuff. As far as what I was listening to uh i normally try to have like i always look forward to these every week yeah to, I know, to I, i'm trying to think what i listened to today that was like oh new music because i kind of just listen to bands it's, it's usually I, how i find out who died that i liked yeah it no one is, has died via podcast and um, david Banks's tweaked reads yeah yeah luckily no one uh that i listened to has died i was listening to you know i was listening to on the drive-in to work today uh amon amarth the uh they're like a sort of power metal band okay um sounds like my alley yeah they have songs called like 
Raven's Flight or Mjolnir, Hammer of Thor. So it's a very power metal type of. Uh, I think I think we're at a point subject. in culture where you don't need to explain what Mjolnir is. No, yeah, anymore. But th- that's the, I think that's, that's the name of the song. That's pretty mainstreamed at this point. Yeah. So. Um, and uh, it all sounded good in my tweet, Dardia.com earbuds. Uh, they're, var- they're available in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors over at tweakedaudio.com at a low, low price. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So, uh, Matt, you emailed me last week mm-hmm. about uh, a friend of yours, a coworker, a colleague of yours, mm-hmm. um, who had uh, an expertise in a, an area of cinema I don't think we've covered extensively or at all, really, on Battleship Pretension. Correct. Um, so, why don't you tell us who's here to tell us about movies. Well, we are here with our guest, uh, Louis Kreish, and he is my uh, friend and colleague at work, as you mentioned. He's also my literal next-door neighbor at our sort of cubicle pod. So we're shoulder-to-shoulder all day, every day, barely ever interact because we both have our headphones on and are clicking and typing away. This is... This is uh, office work in 2019. Yeah, I know exactly. that feeling very well. Well, uh, Louis, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Very um, excited to be here. And uh, I want to get to know you first before we get into the topic a little bit. So where are you sure. from? I'm originally from Lebanon, uh, from a small town in southern Lebanon. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and how did you... What's your path to Los Angeles? How did you get to Los Angeles? I've been in Los Angeles for a year and a half, but yeah. I moved here from uh, from New York. Okay, um, I've lived uh, in the United States for uh, well since I was a teenager. So I've been here for a long time. Oh, okay. Um, had you been to Los Angeles before you moved here? Yeah, okay. I've visited many times, but uh, okay. um, yeah. So you'd yeah. had the Zanku chicken, the, <laughs> yeah, the Lebanese. It's a Lebanese chain, Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Actually, yeah. Yeah. Now that you mentioned that. That's, <laughs> that's, a, that's the first thing I thought of. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's something, something white guys like me and David like a lot. But <laughs> I, I, wonder, I wonder if it would stand up to a higher scrutiny. Yeah, I so. don't know. I had it on a trip to L.A. many years ago, so yeah. I don't remember if I liked it or not. <laughs> and how did, you, uh, how did you become a fan of films how did you become a cinephile um i mean growing up in lebanon uh, i grew up during the the war so um tv uh, more than cinema because you know the movie theaters were mostly not working at uh, okay. during the war but um they were like an escape so it was you know you did escape to a world that was different uh, away from the war or um you know, you do, you do watch these old movies that showed Lebanon in a different way than, you know, I was seeing it growing up. So that's how I got interested first in the film. Great. Uh, and now I want to know what you and uh, Matt do together at, at work when you're not yeah. talking to each other 
staring <laughs> well, at your screens. Well, uh, uh, Luai, do you want to talk a little bit about our international programs? Yes. Which uh, We haven't said where you work yet. Oh, sorry. We, uh, Luai and I both work at Film Independent, a uh, world-famous uh, nonprofit yes. film arts organization based here in Los Angeles, but yeah. uh, worldwide at this point, which uh, goes a lot into what Luai does uh, okay. with us and for us. People are aware of the Independent Spirit Awards. People are aware of the Film Independent Spirit Awards, which is our award show that we yeah. uh, do um, the day before the Oscars. Each year, we uh, produce year-round events and lab programs, um, filmmaker services, educational events. Um, well, this year, all sorts of different weekend panels and conferences and events. We just did something called the Film Independent Forum back in April, which was sort of a three-day industry gathering uh, with some great keynote speakers. And um, yeah, it's not just the Spirit Awards, stuff happening year-round. So, uh, Of course, yes. Uh, I didn't mean to imply that it was just that you were just working <laughs> on the Independent Spirit Awards, uh, you know, 364. Although, although that is a 365-day-a-year job for lots of people at the company and uh it is it is you know our that's our biggest fundraiser of the year okay. so and the way what, what do you do there so i work in the international programs um so just like we support filmmakers in la and the united states we have a lot of programs to support filmmakers everywhere around the world and uh we've worked a lot in the arab world and turkey um and um, i came actually joined film independent to produce a web series targeting arab youth um it basically it's an a to z how to make film and um the goal was to um, have Arab filmmakers teach these lessons in Arabic. So we and this is a this is a series called Film Arabi yes. that um, is available on Film Independence YouTube channel, and it's a sort of a step by step online video filmmaking tutorial course. Yes, and we actually partnered with Film Clinic in uh, Cairo, and uh, where we filmed the series um, at the historic uh, Studio Masr, and we featured around 15, maybe 17 filmmakers from across the Arab world, and each filmmaker taught a lesson or two. Um, they used examples from their work or from Arab cinema, so in addition to teaching how to make a film or how to write a script, you also get to learn about Arab cinema. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, these short, fun episodes in Arabic, but subtitled in English for our audiences around the world. So Arab cinema is what we're here to talk about today, yes. so let's get into it, shall we? Um, you are programming a, a, a series. Is it an open-ended, ongoing series, or is it a, a, does it have a, yes, an end, so we end just, date? So we just launched it. The director of film education and international programs, Mary Bose, this, uh, we, you know, we've been talking about it for a year and a half, um, how we're going to... Um, you know, expose our audience here in LA to Arab cinema because mm -hmm. you don't hear a lot about that. Even although it is a cinema that's been around for almost 100 years, mm -hmm. um, so it was very important for us to do it. We, and we just launched a series this June, and we plan to um, screen films um, throughout the year. Okay, and wh uh, what film did you start with? We started with uh, an Egyptian classic called The Nightingale's Prayer from 1959 by the Egyptian director Henry Barakat. Where was the screening? 
at Film Independent. Oh, in our, the Film Independent's uh, uh, screening room, which yeah. I don't know if you at the festival last year did you go to any press screenings there uh, no David? i didn't okay uh yeah being being a day job haver i never oh, get yeah. to make it to the the press <laughs> screenings at la film fest um uh the the lamented la film fest um and how can people before we get into the movies how can yeah. people find information about the screening series uh filmindependent.org uh is probably your best resource mm-hmm. uh Uh, I would recommend anyone out there who isn't already following Film Independent on, uh, you know, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram to do that. They can subscribe to, and they can subscribe to our YouTube channel if they want to find Filmarabi, the the series that Luai produced that we uh, have been talking about. So great. Yes, the website has always um, a list of events that are happening, and that's where you'll find out when the next uh, screening will be. Um, so I guess I, I want to start with w- oh, the Nightingale's Prayer yeah. from, from, from Egypt. The director's name again? Henry Barakat. Henry Barakat. Um, why did you start with that one? Um, well, unfortunately, a lot of the classic films um, are not dubbed or, I mean, subtitled, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to, I mean, it's a great film. I had to find a film that had good subtitles for our audience here, and that also was of good quality. And uh, a lot of the classic films were saved indirectly by television because they were, you know, um, made into video so mm-hmm. that they can broadcast. Um, so this was, but this is a cla- considered classic film, and um, it uh, is a period film also, which mm-hmm. is not very common in Arab oh, cinema, okay. um, and it's based on a very famous novel as well. And it stars because I, w- I mean, the goal was to expose our audience to as many uh, facets of cinema and Egyptian cinema. Um, so it also stars the biggest. Uh, actress of Arab cinema uh, in Arab cinema uh, Fatin Hamama yeah can you you talk a little more about uh, Fatin Hamama and um, you know I I thought it was so interesting because before these screenings Luai will do um, sort of well you can speak to it more um, certainly but uh, a little bit of a a little bit of a lecture complete with um, visual aids and film clips and everything to do a great job of sort of contextualizing these and I was really blown away by that when he did that because I felt like it put the what we were about to watch in really great um, perspective and I, I learned a lot about uh, you know the figures figures involved and her story in particular seemed very compelling so I mean the reason I'm doing these presentations before the screening uh, because um, you know, after earning three degrees in the United mm-hmm. States in media and film studies and taking so many courses on, you know, film, not once was Arab cinema mentioned in general or an Arab filmmaker or an Arab film, although, like I said, it's, you know, a cinema that is one of the bigger cinemas in the world and also a very long history with a lot of pioneering filmmakers um, throughout our history and also with um, women playing a major role in making okay. movies. So, um, you know, I certainly know, thought that was one of the more interesting things to learn about was the, the you know, how prominent you know, female creators were uh, in the development of yeah. this film culture. Yeah. So um, if we go back to that, I mean, um, 
of course, the Arab world is a huge place, right? So when we talk about Arab cinema, it's really a denonym for Arab cinemas because mm-hmm. there are cinemas throughout the Arab world. The largest is Egyptian cinema. And then you have cinema in Lebanon, in uh, Morocco, and elsewhere. Um, some smaller than, than others. But in the Arab world, when we talk about Arab film, usually it is an Egyptian film okay. because it is the largest. They've, you know, Egyptian cinema has like 4,000 films. And the reason Egypt is, of course, the largest country in terms of population, Cairo and Alexandria are huge cities, were huge cities 100 years ago, um, where people were actually immigrating there. So it's sort of these cities became very metropolitan, and they were a perfect place for cinema houses in the beginning. So the Lumiere brothers, for example, after screening in Paris, their movies, they would, you know, they would screen in Cairo and Alexandria. Um, but Throughout the 20s, most of the films screened in these cinema houses were uh, French or Italian films. And it was only until 1927. There were some short films made for the monarchy, um, mostly newsreels. Mm. Um, until 1927, when a stage actress in Egypt, her name was uh, Aziza Amir, she decided that she wanted to make a feature film that was actually an Egyptian film. So she... Um, was a very famous stage actress and had money, so she was able to finance that film. Um, she wrote, uh, produced the film, and acted in it. And she had hired, you know, first a Turkish director, didn't like his work, fired him, and then hired an Italian director to finish the film. And that became the first feature film uh, from, uh, you know, Egypt and really the Arab world. Um, and it was actually screened in the royal palace, so it encourage other people to do uh, that and suddenly you started sorry, seeing what was it called? Uh, the film was called Layla okay. from 1927 um, I don't believe it was saved so we don't have a copy of it um, but there were you'll see that there were a lot of movies uh, being made in 1927 after this film and in 1928 um, and actually the first studio built was in 1928 in Alexandria it was by uh, Togo Mizrahi who was a Jewish Egyptian um, and I mentioned this in the lecture mm-hmm. how um, the cities in the in Egypt and the Levant Lebanon and Syria and Palestine were very um, cosmopolitan and very I mean we are the original melting pot mm-hmm. of the world you know I mean we have cities that are 5,000 years old so you, you these cities were and still are for you know for the most part, very mixed cities where you have Muslims and Christians and Jews living together mm-hmm. um especially at that time when the industry was being born so you see a lot of Jewish filmmakers working in the industry and it was really we can use the term inclusive that we use today or what Hollywood was trying to do but really the cinema back then in Egypt was very inclusive Uh, so someone like Togo Mizrahi didn't have to change his name to Mm -hmm. fit the larger Muslim population. He kept his Jewish name. And actually throughout the th- uh, 30s, he created these uh, comedic series starting a Jewish actor by the name of Shalom. And he actually played himself. And it was you know, the biggest hits throughout the 30s. Yeah. Um, and actually the biggest star of the 30s was, was a Jewish actress. Uh, Actress-singers, Leila Murad. So you don't hear this kind of things about yeah. Arab cinema, right? And no. this is why the Arab cinema series at Film Independent is very important because 
there are a lot of misconceptions about what it is, um, what Arab cinema is, and what the Arab world is, because well, we don't I, hear... I've mentioned one just off the bat. I was very surprised. You, you mentioned the, that there are Arab cities that are 5,000 years old, and you also mentioned that per- period pieces are rare in Arab cinema. Mm-hmm. I, I would have expected, with that much history, for there to be more period pieces. Um, I think they're more expensive to make. Ah. Um, I guess there are, there are some, but for the most part, um, I mean, now they make more than they used to, uh, period. But um, the, more, the genre that they did a lot was the drama, melodrama, comedy. Um, you don't have a lot of horror films. Yeah. And now there's a lot of you know action films and thrillers and so forth. But back then, in the golden age of Arab cinema, it was mainly dramas and comedies, romantic comedies. Um, um, yeah. You mentioned how... Uh, a lot of these I mean this is true of all early cinemas a lot of these movies are lost um, or hard to come by what uh, in the screening series what format are you projecting Um, the last one was actually just a DVD yeah 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 that's uh, however I mean, you can see it. Exactly. <laughs> you know? I mean, especially with the older films that we want to screen, this might be the only option. With newer films, we will have, uh, you know, obviously better quality. And we want to show a range <clears throat> in the series from, you know, the classic films to more contemporary, uh, Egyptian, Lebanese, Moroccan, throughout from the yeah. Arab world. Now, this is why I always <clears throat> say that the people who are celluloid purists are elitists <laughs> and to me I mean, well it, yeah <laughs> it is an interesting story how, how Luai is saying that a lot of these films it, it only exist in 2019 because of their sort of TV broadcast yeah. bastardization because yes. that's the format that yeah. that survives from them um, you, you know which, which is interesting and I, th- I you know if you want to talk about it in like more existential terms it's like you know the transmuting of like the idea and the storytelling and the artistic impulse uh you know cross-platform as something that we would say now but but like retaining that is the thing that matters that's important rather than the the delivery system so that's great yeah Uh, yeah, it's um, and <clears throat> and you'll see these movies, these classic films, over and over again on TV in the Arab world. You know, being broadcast late night and so forth. So they're common. I mean, they're still household names, um, and the stars are still household names. <clears throat> Our the star of the Nightingale Prayer uh, mm-hmm. you mentioned, Fatin Hamama. Um, she's considered the first lady of the Arab screen. Um, you know, um, of course. You know, we were talking here a hundred years ago. A lot of these societies were conservative, and a lot of families didn't understand the film industry. So, uh, for a woman to become an actress wasn't something, even a man, wasn't something that you know families encouraged. Mm-hmm. Right? They wanted you to become an engineer or a doctor and so forth. So there was this, you know, misconception about what an actress is, and actually it took someone like Fatin Hamama to change that. Um, um, you know, image of an actress because she was actually a child actress, and people saw her grow grow on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and the movies she made were, I mean, today that we consider them classic films from that period. So uh, she just gained the respect of the audience, and with that, respect for the uh, profession. Um, and she worked throughout her life. Um, you know, and, you know. And, 
to the, her late 60s, early 70s. Um, she was always... And you said she was, uh, she was Omar Sharif's wife? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Omar oh, wow. Sharif, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Omar Sharif, throughout his life, even though he had many love affairs, superstar, <laughs> right? Uh, he always talked about his, the only... His, I mean, his we're talking only, about Omar Sharif, yeah. you know? <laughs> his only true uh, love was Fatin Hamama. Um, you know, he even converted to Islam to marry her. I mean, that's how much he loved her. Oh, wow. um, but yeah, Fatin Hamama is still a household name, and she something that's really interesting about um, also Arab cinema is that there are a lot of female-centric stories in Arab cinema. So a lot of the movies revolve around a female uh, figure, and I think that's also very interesting to hear about Arab cinema because if we look at Hollywood, it's not always the case. And women, uh, especially during the Golden Age, I mean, were um, like Fat and Hamama, were mm-hmm. able to maintain their stardom until late into their uh, years. So even when she started making television series later in her life, the series she would. Be be the star and everything would revolve around the you know even if she was a mother the mother figure right she uh, the story revolved around her it was she wasn't a secondary mm-hmm. uh, character to a younger uh, you know star and oh i'm sorry go ahead david well i was gonna get i, I want to get into some more specific movies i'm seeing the note you have extensive notes which i love <laughs> the page yes. closest to me is Organized by country. Do yes. you want to? Do you want to go into? I mean, yeah. I mean, this is my cheat sheet, so that if I want to mention <laughs> a, a film, I can remember, you know, the year and so forth. But like I said, Arab cinema means the cinemas of the Arab world. So, although Egypt has the oldest and longest continually running cinema and the largest in terms of film production, um, you have a, a small country like Lebanon who also has. Um, a long history of filmmaking, although because of the war, not continuously, um, right. you know, okay. like uh, Egypt. But it is considered the second largest in terms of production. Okay. Um, so, what are some of the what are some of the hallmarks, the hallmark Egyptian films? Yes. So, um, I'll talk about you know s- some really important directors. Like, of course, in the in Europe at least, the most known is Yusuf Shaheen. Okay. Not so much in the United States, even though he was educated here in Los Angeles. Oh. Um, so... Um, what are his films? So the one of the most famous ones are uh, Cairo Station. Okay. In, from 1958. And he actually stars in it as well. It's oh, a beautiful okay. film. I want to try to get a copy. And it's all set in a train station. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is. Um, it was made after the uh, um, revolution when Egyptian cinema moved from this glamour of the golden age to more uh, uh, realism. So it's sort of like the Egyptian neorealism mm-hmm. uh, movement. And so it talks about, in this film... Um, it shows how society in Egypt was changing, uh, where you have the, um, you know, the upper class is suddenly mingling with the more, uh, let's say, low income. Mm-hmm. Um, is that reflective of what was happening? Yes, in Egypt at that time. I mean. In the film it is, because then you suddenly see everybody using the train station, right? So you see all aspects of society. and But the way he's portraying it is not romanticized like poverty was or the rural areas were 
during the monarchy. So it's uh, a very interesting film. It also stars Hindrustom, who is um, um, a very famous uh, actress from that period and considered a, you know, a sex symbol. Um, but again, um, even though she's a sex symbol in this film, but it's a very gritty performance as mm. well. Um, Cairo Station. Another film from the same year that I mentioned during the presentation mm -hmm. was uh, it's called A Woman on the Road and it's also by another um, very famous director, Azidin Zulfokar. Um, this film is significant because in cinema, in world cinema, usually the object of desire is the female, mm. and the camera gazes on the mm. of, on on the female. We rarely see this camera reversed, where you know the gaze is suddenly on the male, and the male is objectified. In 1958, Azadine um, Zulfiqar did that. He reversed the gaze mm -hmm. and um, I, sh I showed yeah, a clip and yeah Louis showed a clip from this uh, during this this presentation and there was some pretty hilarious uh, double well I guess what do you call like a double entendre that's like a visual gag because what is it she's oh, okay. she, the, the woman in the scene it, it well, kind of reaches I mean, a point where she's yeah. like caressing a, a, a phallus-shaped banister or <laughs> something. Absolutely. So, body. I mean, when the scene first opens, you just see a very beautiful, you know, voluptuous woman in negligee walking towards the bed, and she lies on it like in a very sensual way. So, at first, you think this is a very classic. Mm -hmm. objectification of the woman but suddenly with because it's a musical number mm -hmm. as well she's singing suddenly the um, the camera reverses this case like suddenly we instead of staring at her we're staring staring at the man uh -huh. right? she's objectifying him through this peephole and the man is Rushdie Abaza. He is considered the, you know, the symbol of masculinity yeah. of Arab cinema. And here he is basically turned into just a sexual object of this woman. Yeah, it's very beefcake. He's very beefcake yeah. <laughs> in, that, in that scene. Yes. Um, yeah. Are musicals common? In yes, so the musical number was a common feature. A lot of the actresses or actors would be singers. Mm -hmm. So this was common, and so was the belly dancing number. Not in this film, but mm -hmm. a lot, of, especially during the golden era, during the monarchy, there would always be a, a dance number. And the belly dancers were huge stars. Uh, often they were the romantic lead in the uh, film. And Louis, when you're saying the golden age, what years are we talking so about? So it's probably yeah. the 30s, 40s, 50s, throughout the 50s, okay. you know, even past the um, when the revolution happened. And then what happened during the revolution in Egyptian cinema, the new regime decided to nationalize cinema meaning that all the studios now are government-owned, mm -hmm. sort of like they were allied with the Soviet Union, so mm -hmm. it was all this social. So the movie industry at least the producers are like we're not giving up on making money so they actually <laughs> migrated mm -hmm. to Lebanon so suddenly in the 60s you see all these Egyptian movies being made in Lebanon so watching an Egyptian film in the 60s or early 70s will most likely be set in Lebanon because over there you know then the, uh, it was a free market economy and uh, and this is when you see more sex as well because mm -hmm. the media laws were more liberal okay so you see more like nudity and sexual content before that it was mainly the belly dance number and then the innuendos that mm -hmm. you saw in that film 
Uh, what are some of these Lebanese films? Are Le- films from Egyptian the, films produced in Lebanon, or are they? Lebanese? So they were like a co-production. Okay. So where the most of the writing was probably, I would say, Egyptian, but the produ- uh, producers would be uh, because Egypt in Cairo. Before the, I mean, a lot of Arabs worked there, so it was sort of like Hollywood, mm-hmm. where you had uh, Lebanese and Syrian actors and producers working in in Cairo. So, um, you know, migrating to Lebanon is, was just another location for these people, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, there's a lot of these co-production: Lebanese, Egyptian, Lebanese, Syrian. Um, from that period, there is. Um, um, I'm trying to translate the title from okay. Arabic. <laughs> the best days of my life, etc. Uh, romantic comedy where a woman assumes the role of a man. Or she's like in disguise throughout okay. the film. Um, it's a, again a, a classic uh, romantic comedy. So it's the Lebanese just one of the guys. Then. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. I mean the stars were Egyptian, but okay. then the, all the other cast were probably around the Lebanese, and it was set in Lebanon. There's always in the story why these Egyptians were living in. Uh, in Lebanon um, yeah so you've uh, we've been talking about Egypt yes that, so, I mean that's you said that's the largest Arab yes. cinema and also the oldest yeah. going back to 27 is that yeah correct yeah I mean there were some attempts like uh, but then again in Lebanon the first film was in I think 1929 so okay but then it wasn't continuous like in Egypt because the market is so much smaller mm-hmm. so you'd see a lot of people um, and then of course Lebanon was affected by World War II because we were a French mandate so once that war started a lot of these filmmakers and actors moved to Egypt like Asya Dagher mm-hmm. who I would love to mention as well so Asya Dagher is this woman who came to Egypt in the 1920s from Lebanon from a small town in the mountains and she was a beautiful woman and she became an actress made some 20 movies and then decided to made enough money to start producing her own films by the time she died, she had made 100 films. Until today, she holds the record for the producer with the most produced films in the entire Arab world. She's you know, considered the dean of producers. This is another woman mm-hmm. talking about women pioneers. Um, yes. Uh, so my, I guess my question was, uh, and you kind of answered it by yeah. saying yeah. the Lebanese cinema also goes back to the 20s. What, what is happening in during this golden age yeah. in Egypt? Is it also a golden age in these other countries? What's going on in what's going on in the up until the sixties yes. and other other parts? So of the no, world? because Egypt became such a large industry, they would all move to Egypt okay. and work there. Uh, this is why I'm saying the longest continuously operating uh, film industry um, in Lebanon in the fifties. Uh, someone by the name of George Nasser, which we will hopefully screen um, his film or a documentary about him. Um, he's a mm-hmm. UCLA graduate, by the way. Um, Go Bruins. Yes. <laughs> he uh, went back to Lebanon and started making movies, was in Cannes and so forth. So there were these attempts of making a national cinema, but it wouldn't pick up uh, until the 60s with the migration from Egypt and all these producers moving through. We were making in the 60s around 100 films a year for a wow. tiny country like Lebanon. That was huge. Um, so, but there were um, the national cinema of Lebanon didn't start really to take shape and identity until the war, and so, that's when you started seeing these really Lebanese films. You mentioned the Egyptian films being the Egyptian Lebanon co-productions. Yes, uh, the you, you mentioned the the standards being a little more or not the the not the standards the. Uh, 
the censorship or whatever, they, were, they could get away with a little bit more. Yes. Did those troubles? Did those films then have trouble being shown in Egypt? Um, no, not really. This okay. is uh, what's surprising. <laughs> they showed all over the Arab world, That's and they still they still um, screen on TV as well. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, and then and in Egypt, like I said during the presentation, uh, like the kiss, the romantic kiss mm-hmm. was uh, you know from day one uh, part of the narrative. So it wasn't something that was a taboo to show a kiss on the screen Um, in 1927 there was uh, a film called A Kiss in the Desert obviously it was about a kiss so that early on where where was the kiss? (laughs) in the desert (laughs) okay Um, so uh, yes so yeah it's really interesting and it's really also interesting how some filmmakers become very creative in uh, depicting um, you know sensual or sexual content but Hollywood went through this as well during the mm-hmm. Hayes Code so yeah. it's not something that's unusual right so there was always ways yeah. to go around it the 70s were a little bit more liberal late 60s early 70s um, unfortunately a lot of these movies are not really good to sustain that okay. you know, sexuality <laughs> right so uh, yeah um but uh, uh, sorry, I, I I guess my question here is then: Was Lebanon then the most? Did that country offer the most freedom of the Arab world? Or, um, but I, I, I guess what I'm saying, to yeah. the larger question I'm getting at is, like you said, Arab cinema is really Arab cinemas. Yes. What are the Hallmarks. What are the yes. demark- demarcators? So if we go if back to Egypt, the censorship during the monarchy wasn't about. Sexual content necessarily. It was more about how Egypt is depicted on okay. film, right? So it was a lot romanticized. Was a lot about glamour and so okay. forth. It's very much like like China now. Yeah, I think. or you know, uh, the thirties here. It's all yeah, about yeah. glamour, right? Mm. Um, the Hays Code and so forth. Um, but yes, Lebanon has always had more liberal media media laws. So that in the sixties and seventies served um, cinema. Um, but really, I mean. When it comes to the differences between cinemas, I mean, I, I mean, it's hard to you know, like, to say that Egyptian cinema is about this, other than like the periods that it went through. So if you, we talk, if you go, for example, to, to Lebanon, it's more about the periods. So the, during the war, if we look at cinema in Lebanon during the war, it was mainly. Um, films made for festival runs because obviously nobody went to the movies during the war mm-hmm. or very rarely mm-hmm. um, and so these filmmakers would make these films with the f- European festivals in mind so there would be festival films mm-hmm. not really necessarily commercial mm-hmm. or they didn't care about the masses watching them necessarily mm-hmm. um, so and then you see the cinema after the war changes and it becomes more you know um, with a different uh, genres that attract a more larger or a larger audience are you hoping to screen any of these festival made films in the series because that sounds pretty fascinating yes absolutely yeah absolutely yeah. Any... I want to show a, ve- a variety of that yeah. and I want to show a variety of films from Morocco to Palestine because you know like another cinema is the Palestinian cinema which is a very interesting cinema because uh, obviously Palestine is not an independent country at, the, at this time right yeah. but well I remember there was that um, there, there was a 
a sort of controversy with, mm-hmm. well, I'm going back to Divine Intervention. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, which, uh, finally, a movie I can, that I've yes. seen. Great. <laughs> um, but there was some controversy yeah. with, it It wasn't eligible for the foreign language Oscar yes. because it has to be submitted by a country that's recognized mm. and Palestine wasn't. That was a very fascinating to me because Divine Intervention is a wonderful movie. Yes. It's this very political but also very absurd mm-hmm. uh, type of type of comedy absolutely uh, and he's uh, influenced a lot of filmmakers in the Arab world and his name is uh, Suleiman what is his yes, person Suleiman Ilayas uh, uh, Suleiman Ilayas Suleiman um, and of course the first film from Par- Paradise Now in 2005 was submitted mm-hmm. and accepted and was nominated by Hani Abu Asad so yeah. uh, did the Academy change the rule because yes. of the controversy it, over Defined Intervention? Uh, probably okay. yeah. I think they got some backlash yeah, um, yeah because, that's what I remember reading because in Cannes and other European festivals you know uh, Palestinian films show all the time hmm. um but with Palestine, it's very interesting because you have Palestinians making fil- Palestinians who are also Israeli citizens making films. So that's one kind of Palestinian film. And then you have the Palestinians outside or in the West Bank making a completely different cinema yeah. from a completely different experience, right? So this is another cinema mm-hmm. that is very interesting because one is about what it means to be a, a Palestinian living in the state of Israel. The other one is about state statelessness or about living under occupation or as a living as a refugee so and Suleiman is of the latter category yes. what are some films from the first category that like Michel Khlaifi uh, a wedding in Galilee um, um, there was a, a film by a Palestinian Israeli filmmaker um, I'm trying to remember her name uh, my Saloon Hamoud she made a film a couple of years ago it's called In Between it's about uh, three Palestinian women working in Tel Aviv so, so it's a different kind of uh, cinema right yeah. because different uh, kind of experiences uh, we have also uh, filmmakers like Najwa Najjar um, who's a Palestinian filmmaker uh, female um, who's done three films and it's always centered around you know this the, the uh, idea of uh, the state or um, citizenship or um, a national idea. So, yeah. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, filmmakers from, and a lot of female filmmakers yeah. from uh, uh, Palestine. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, uh, well, let's uh, get into some other countries we haven't talked sure. about. Sure. Yeah. So, um, Jordan is a country that doesn't have a long history of filmmaking but the Jordanian government actually supports you know the film industry so in recent years we've seen some films you know coming out there uh, out of Jordan um, uh, films by Amin Matalka by uh, Fadi Haddad and of course Dib which was nominated uh, for an Academy Award uh, a few years ago I didn't see it Dib T-H-E-E-B Oh, right, right. So it, it was it compared a to a, like, a, it's, um, you know, some of the critics said it's a Bedouin Western. Oh, yeah. okay. That's so, good. Yeah, it's Sounds a great. really good film. Yeah. <laughs> it's set in southern uh, Jordan in the Wadi Rum Petra region. It's beautifully shot as well. Oh, wow. 
um, yeah, Syria in recent years also has had a great success with um, special documentaries. Sure. So in the past two years, we've had two Syrian documentaries uh, being nominated for the Oscars yeah. here in the United States. I saw one of them. What, what, what were the na- so names? So Last Man in Aleppo by Firas Fayyad and the last years of Fathers and Sons by Talal Durki. Okay, I saw the first one. Uh, and I've seen the second one. <laughs> yes, because it was because it was nominated for yes. uh, the Film Independent Spirit Awards. Yes, right. yes. Yeah. Both of them are, um, you know, not easy films to watch. No, because uh, I mean, yeah, speed, yeah uh, Father. It's I don't know if you know much about it, David, no. but it's uh, this this journalist Talal Durki. Talal Durki. He basically uh, is embedded with. Um, you know, an, an ISIS family, or or I forget, like are they is it? There's sort of aspiring yes. ISIS uh, sympathizers, um, and it's this family with these young kids that you know you just kind of watch get uh, get sort of in, indoctrinated into this uh, this, ideology. this view, ideology and this viewpoint, and wow. it's 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 you know pretty unflinching, and it's. As Louis says, not, a, not an easy watch. You know, it makes you think a lot about stuff, about a lot of different, um, you know, just the ways different cultures and ideologies, you know, groom their youth, basically. Mm-hmm. And you can, can consider your own cultures and the ways that it does that as well when you watch that. So I can, I can, I haven't seen a lot of these films that Louis is talking about, but I can vouch for that one in particular. Um, well, I don't want to just... I, I do like talking about contemporary cinema because I, I, I like the idea that this is the, this is an ongoing yes. cinema, but I don't just want to talk about that. Are these, so these, you mentioned recent Jordanian and Syrian films. Did they have a cinema in Yes, the I mean, uh, in Syria, um, there is a film from probably the early uh, late 70s, early 80s by Dored Laham. It's called Borders. And Dored Laham was a, um, a Syrian comedian, um, but he also um, was like he would write his own, you know, um, dramas and comedies and films and so forth. Um, and he um, made this film about, you know, you have to remember that this region, especially the Levant, Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, Jordan. You know, before before during the Ottoman Empire, at least these were open borders, right? And people actually moved, mm-hmm. sort of like you know, it's a very small place mm-hmm. if you think about it. Um, you know, between Beirut and Damascus, it's a two-hour drive, right? Um, and so it, this whole film is about the absurdity of these borders that were put up, um, you know, after the Ottoman Empire fell. Um, and, but it is. A, com- a comedy at the same time so this is one of the um, you know my favorite Syrian films um, Borders by Dored Laham and what, what year is that Lai? I would say early 80s early 80s yeah, okay. I can't remember the um, exact year didn't write it down okay. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't okay. make it onto your three pages of uh Eight and a half yeah, by 11 it's available. I mean, notes. I'd love to show that one, but I don't know if I can get a, a subtitled copy. It's, uh, yeah, you only see it on TV in the Arab world now. Hmm. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I mean, there's 
but again a lot of because a lot of the because Egypt had a, such a large industry a lot of the filmmakers would move to Egypt and work there okay so you see like even Henry Barakat he's actually of Sy- Egyptian of Syrian descent oh okay um, so you, there's a lot of these examples because this is where the you know the center of the filmmaking was um and the Arab world is such a vast place that the films of the western part of the Arab world, Tunisia, Algeria, and Morocco, they're not very well known to the rest of the Arab world. First of all, the language differs. So, you know, we, have, we don't all speak the same language. It's sort of like Danish and Swedish and Norwegian. Mm-hmm. Sort of mutually understood, but not the same languages, but we just call them all Arabic, right? <laughs> Egypt. I, that's what I was going to ask. Could yeah. you do any of the subtitling yourself? But do you not always... Yeah, so like most people understand Egyptian Arabic and Levantine Arabic, which is the Syrian, Lebanese, Palestinian, because of the media, because of film, because of music. But um, there's other parts of the Arab world where the Arabic is not easily understood because we're not familiar with the way they pronounce the letters or the idioms and Mm -hmm. so forth. And one of them is, you know, North Africa. So while they are mutually understandable between each other, it's, you know, it doesn't really translate well when they go eastwards. And because the center was in Egypt, Egypt became sort of like the lingua franca. Mm. And then second, very, uh, would be uh, Lebanese Syrian dialects. Uh, also understood. So even in the Arab world, they're not very familiar with Moroccan or Tunisian films. Hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, that's, uh, there's a recent Tunisian film, As I Open My Eyes. Uh, I don't know if you saw. No, I haven't. Yeah, uh, it came out maybe three or four years ago. It's about a uh, basically a rebellious teenage girl and her uh, single mom, and she's the girl is like joins this sort of like a uh, rock band that's like a political like outspoken rock band and her mom's like you shouldn't do that because that's you know you're going to get in trouble and is it like uh, a moroccan pussy riot kind of a uh, thing <laughs> not no. quite i don't think they're quite that uh, no. in your face but uh it's, it's basically just a coming of age story mm-hmm. uh but it was a good movie and also a female director i can't remember her name but uh yes that was a recent tunisian Sure. We have um, last year at the LA Film Festival one of our fellows um, for one of our programs, Global Media Makers, um, Najib Bilqadi is from Tunisia, and he actually workshopped his script in our uh, LA residency that we do every year for international filmmakers, um, primarily from the Arab world and Turkey, but this year also from South Asia. Um, and the film is called Look at Me. And um, it's actually pretty good. Did you see it? I never saw it. No. And so it's it's pretty good. It's about a um, Tunisian man who uh, basically had abandoned his son, and when his um, ex-wife dies, he has to go back to Tunisia from France, where he was living, you know, uh, a very, you know, single man's mm-hmm. life, right? <laughs> and. Um, the um, and you know the the child I can't remember now I think he is actually autistic and so that it's it's about this father who you know discovers this about his son that he didn't know and how he you know manages to build a relationship mm. with his son that has you know uh, autism mm. so it was a very uh, powerful film. Uh, I want to go back to something you said earlier because it reminded me 
uh, a few months ago we had uh, someone on here to uh, on the podcast to talk about Brazilian cinema. Yes. And he was describing Brazilian cinema as essentially two separate cinemas. There's the one that makes all of the festival films and the ones that get seen by art house fans in the rest of the world, and there's the the um, the yes. the, in, the, in, the domestic like sort yes, of absolutely. Uh, is that the same? Absolutely. Uh, so, <laughs> so the films. Uh, this is <laughs> why I want to do the series because yeah. a lot of the films that are seen in the United States or in Europe are these festival films. Mm -hmm. And they're often written with the festivals in mind because filmmakers are smart and they start (laughs) seeing, okay, so they took this film, so this is what they're looking for. So often, a lot of the films are how the West wants to see this world, right? Or the expectations of the West of this world. Right. Hmm. So this is why you see a lot of films about refugees, about poverty and hardships. You rarely see a romantic, a great romantic comedy from the you know Arab world making it. There's an exception. I don't know if you saw it. Caramel uh, no. by Nadine Labaki from 2007. Uh, Nadine Labaki is a female Lebanese director. This yeah. was her first feature film. Else. Yes, last year she was nominated for her film was nominated for best foreign film Capernaum. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, but she also made Where Do We Go Now? That's, Absolutely, I saw that one. Yes, great. Yeah, so, I like that one. Yeah, so these are you know she's she's one of those filmmakers who is able to create a balance between what is going to appeal to the festival circuit, which is very important to promote films, but also what is going to appeal to a mass audience in her own country and region. So you see that her films like Caramel, Where Do We Go Now, and even Capernaum, even though it's a really heavy film to watch, uh, have done really well um, in the region as well, not only abroad. Oh, even though Capernaum has made like $50 million in China. Hmm. Which oh, wow. is really that's, that's crazy, crazy, right? Yeah. Um, so Nadine Lubecki is this uh, filmmaker who was able to make it a lot of. But you're right, just like in Brazil, we have filmmakers who only make films for the festivals. And how, like, how bifurcated is it? Like, if I went to to Lebanon and mentioned uh, just to people I met festival films that I'd seen, would they even have heard of them? Um, uh, or, or is it just completely exported? Yes. So if you mention films by Maroon Baghdadi from the 70s, um, and he's considered one of the greatest Lebanese filmmakers, a lot of people will not even know his name. Hmm. Uh, unless they are, you know, film aficionados sure. and film lovers. Um, because they're not. they were made during a time where people rarely went to the cinemas because of the war. Um, this, like I said, changed. Today we do have, like Nadine Labeki, she's a household name, uh, Ziad Dwayri, uh, The Insult, two years ago, also nominated. I didn't see that, but I knew an Academy Award. Yeah. And his first feature, West Beirut, um, was also a huge hit in Lebanon. So, we, so there are some who are managing to do that, and others are just making films for festivals. What, what, what are some like some Arab cinema world equivalents of like big blockbusters that maybe don't, wouldn't appeal to uh, a Western art house crowd? Yes. Yeah, so when I'm flying back to Lebanon on Air France, <laughs> usually they have a selection of Arab films and I'm like, well, oh my God, why did they choose these ones? Right? <laughs> They're like, you know, the silly slapstick comedies or these, you know, romantic 
yeah. movies that are not, you know, aesthetically the best examples of Arab cinema, but they must have had a huge success in the box office. Otherwise, why would they be also selling to Air France? Think, Air France, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a, a, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, the, in Egypt, there's a lot of action films mm-hmm. nowadays that are huge hits. Um, you know, with stars, one of the biggest stars is Saad Ramadan, and you know, he's always um, topless and showing off. You know, mm-hmm. just like <laughs> another beefcake. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, still this is the, so this <laughs> is the kind of, and you know, with cars blowing <laughs> up and you know, typical yeah. star uh, blockbuster films. And the independent films suffer because, you know, it's hard to compete with that. So often what they do is they do seek co-productions, especially with Europe. So France and Germany and Sweden offer a lot of co-productions. So you see a lot of these films co-produced. So um, like Aitan Amin, who is also mm-hmm. a GMM fellow, um, the film she's um, filming right now um, is a co-production. What, what film what was that? What, what, the she, one she developed in in, in our labs? Um, Soad. She's filming it right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, Very so cool. hopefully we'll see it next year. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of... So it's the same idea. You know. um, but I think in, in, even here in Los Angeles, you have that, right? So independent filmmakers have to find means to make their small movies. And often it's very difficult uh, to compete with the Avengers, right? Mm -hmm. So I think in the Arab world, it's even harder. Um, Fewer and fewer people are watching movies in the movie theaters, right? So Mm -hmm. um, the producers and the movie theater owners want these movies that make big money. And unfortunately, the other films end up just doing the festival circuit. Is there... At the beginning of the episode, you talked about the connection sort of to, to, to France that the Lumiere brothers would come mm-hmm. and then the, a, a lot of these movies are being screened in in France the the Arabic movies do they have an audience there uh, we, there is a bigger audience than there is obviously here the largest minority um, in, in France are uh, French people of Arab descent yeah. mainly from North Africa um but yes, like the movies of Nadine Labeki have done well in France. A lot of uh, you know Tunisian filmmakers, like uh, Moroccan filmmakers, like Nabil Ayouch, his movies have done well in uh, uh, in in France. Uh, one of my favorite films from Morocco is Ali Zawa. Okay. It's a uh, beautiful story about uh, uh, street kids and how one of them. Um, dies or is killed and the whole journey is about these kids trying to find to bury basically their mm-hmm. friend yeah. um, it's a very good film so Nabil Ayush his, his movies do very well in France for example so yes and of course the proximity I mean France and the other world are not very far away from each other and France obviously ruled a lot of these countries <laughs> for a long time <laughs> so there's this that yeah, there's um, there's always imperialism. I yes. suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, I was going to get because uh, I wanted to ask about that. Like um, the French, are there French? I guess when I was looking up Arab movies that I'd seen, mm-hmm. I thought of a movie from 2014 called Timbuktu. Yes, but it's a French movie. But it 
people so the filmmaker the yeah. filmmaker is from Mauritania yeah. which is an Arab, yeah. Arabic speaking country in western Africa um, northwestern Africa I guess south of Morocco <laughs> get it right yeah. I, I don't know if I, I guess it's considered North Africa <laughs> it's on the west coast um, yeah the, but but yeah I, I it was, was filmed you know in, Tem- in Tembuktu I believe and with with actors from there the filmmaker is there from there originally but okay. I think he grew up in France and the co-production the production or the money came from France but it's considered a um, uh, it was the Mauritania's submission, yeah. and it actually was nominated for an Academy. Uh, and it's it's really an good amazing film. movie. Yes. I, yeah, I really love that movie. Yes. But um, I, I just wonder about, uh, I don't want to get into too much sticky content. <laughs> no, <laughs> sticky, no, these are... But, but the, the relationship between this part of the world and France is... When it comes to film, no, when it comes to film, it's a very supportive relationship because um, they have funds and you apply to these funds. And uh, if your film gets selected, you know, you can make your movies or you can find uh, co-production deals. Uh, And not only France, I mean, Germany does it, Sweden does it, uh, Norway. There's a lot of European, Europeans have a lot of these activities where they support what they call cinema of the south okay uh yeah i guess because i was thinking you mentioned the the uh arabs living in france being a large minority and it made me think of the movie not an arabic movie but the documentary the battle of algiers yes and uh so that's where i got the yeah so that's another film where is it algerian or is it french you know this uh, yeah uh, yeah, but, but what do you say? say? What's it? What say you? I would say a chronicle of the years of fire from 1975 uh, okay. is an Algerian film. Okay, so okay. if you want to watch an Algerian film, an epic Algerian film, watch this. It's by Mohammed Lakhtar Lahma. Um, but I guess it's, it's it's heartening to hear that the cinematic relationship between these two parts of the world is much more uh, cooperative than maybe some of the yeah. political history. I, yes. I mean, you know, filmmakers in the end, you know, it's about the art, it's yeah. about telling the story. So I think, you know, I'm sure, I mean, um, you know, I haven't, you know, obviously had any experience in Europe, most of my experience is in here, but from mm-hmm. what I've learned is that there's a lot of um, these uh, programs that support filmmakers uh, in the Arab world that you can, as a filmmaker, apply to or attend. And this is how Nadine Labaki developed her first script. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in France. So, um, was there anything about Arabic cinema that you really wanted, to, that you haven't touched on yet, that you really wanted the listeners to hear before before we that, have a night toward wrapping that up? That, like the Arab world, it's a very diverse cinema. It's uh, you know, there's this misconception that you know the Arab world is this one thing that uh, Arab people look one certain thing um, or believe in one certain thing. We are a very diverse. It's a you know, it's a part of the world that spans two continents uh, it's uh, you know a very rich in culture so there's different cultures across this huge span of land um, ethnically and racially it's very diverse religiously it's also very diverse and since we're, you know you mentioned this in the United States there's a major misconception misrepresentation of what an Arab is um, 
according to uh, Jacques Shaheen, who uh, wrote a book um, called Real Bad Arabs, Real R-E-E-L, mm-hmm. um, he... Uh, He was a professor and he worked on it for many years. Um, This book, he surveyed like 1,000 films from the beginning of making movies in the United States until like, you know, just before he died. Um, And of the 1,000 films, like 900 something of them portrayed Arabs either in a negative way or in a very stereotypical way. And like only 21 of these films that he surveyed had a positive image of an Arab, right? So if you want to see how Arabs uh, see themselves, portray themselves, tell story, tell their stories, you have to watch Arab cinema because you're not getting it from Hollywood. Sure. Right? Um, last year, there was a movie called Beirut, obviously from the name. It's about the city. Mm-hmm. It's it about the, the drinking game. Right. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I wish. No, this was a um, by Brad, Tony, Brad Anderson film, yes, right? By, and written Hamm. by Tony Gilroy, who said he worked on it for like a decade, but never went to the city. Like you're writing a movie about Beirut, and you don't like think in ten years to buy a ticket and travel to Beirut to get to know the city. It was filmed in Morocco because Lebanon, Morocco must look alike in mm-hmm. the minds of someone like you know the director, I guess. There was no one involved in the, on the creative team that was Lebanese or Arab, right? And this is very common in Hollywood. So, I mean, today Hulu announced that they're making a series about the Syrian war from the eyes of a Frenchman. And they announced the creative team and there's not one single Syrian or Arab. Wow. So this is still acceptable in Hollywood did you see John Wick 3 yet no well there's a long section that takes place in Morocco I don't know if they shot it there yeah. but the that's Keanu Reeves right it, so maybe he thinks he's Lebanese because he was born in Beirut I don't know <laughs> <laughs> was he really um, yeah he's oh. not Lebanese um, okay. yeah no, I but I was, I, I, was it, it, it was it supposed to be Morocco uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. it's supposed to be Morocco uh, well, but, that's good. But the, but the main ca- like there's hardly any Arabic characters of except course. for the ones that they yeah. So usually, shoot out. so it's it's <laughs> Holly Berry, and the guy who plays Braun on yes. Game of Thrones are like the three biggest speaking roles in the Moroccan this sequence. Is, <laughs> this is typical. If they're they're shooting there because of incentives and because it's beautiful to shoot mm-hmm. in Morocco or exotic or whatever. The same reason why they shoot in Jordan, but usually Jordan or Morocco are backdrops. They're never about that. And if it is about that place, like you said, they're, you know, the characters don't have anything yeah. to do with the narrative. There was one, uh, the actor, Saeed Tagmui, is that how you say his name? He was, uh, he's, the, he's in um, Three Kings. He's the one who tortures... Uh, <laughs> is he... Uh, I'm not sure where he's from, but he's in... He, he might be South Asian. I don't know why you're looking at me. Because sometimes they use... <laughs> Let's see. He is. <laughs> yeah, I'm, no, for Moroccan. me, for Mark, okay. Yeah, that's good. That's a, yeah. kudos for them. Because <laughs> in 2019. He's yeah. been in a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. in, in 2019. He's a that guy. Yeah. If you yeah. want to make a, sto- uh, uh, write, I mean, make a story or tell a story about the Syrian war, you have to involve Syrians. You have to bring a Syrian writer on board because there's no way 
for someone who hasn't experienced the war or lived in Syria to get the nuances of the Syrian culture. So it's no longer acceptable to make a movie like Beirut and not have one single Lebanese on the creative team. It's, it wouldn't happen with any, any other minority. I mean, you, can ma- you can't make a movie about Asian Americans and not have Asians working on the creative team. It wouldn't be acceptable, right? Yeah. And it shouldn't be acceptable for the Arab minorities in the United States, especially with the history of misrepresentation that is evident in the movies. They don't get it right. Lena Dunham should not be making a movie about Syrian refugees. She, she should be putting in the money, but she should be hiring a Syrian writer to write. Is that it. something that's happening? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I must have uh, not gotten my. Oh, so. I was trying to pull the name of her newsletter, Lenny. Her Lenny letter this month. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, should, I should have stepped in and helped you out. I let, I let you flounder. I knew it was Lenny. But there are yeah. a lot of movies available on streaming services that you can watch. So on Netflix, I highly recommend uh, Sheikh Jackson. Oh yeah. Also a GMM fellow who developed a script in one of our labs. Um, this is, the Global I, Media Makers. I haven't seen the final, first residency. I haven't seen the final version of this, but yeah. I love the idea. Do you want to tell yes. about the idea a little so bit? So it is about. It's a beautiful story because a lot of young men in Egypt went through this. Um, you know, you're trying to define who you are, and you're often influenced by your surroundings. So this kid grows up being a huge Michael Jackson fan, right? Uh-huh. Listens to his music, dances like, dresses like he does, and so forth. And then uh, Egypt goes through this period of, let's say, you know, Muslim preachers preaching, you know, a certain way of living. And he gets sucked into that life and becomes this extreme uh, person who's practicing religion in a very extreme way. And then all of that, this kind of dichotomy that exists inside him, literally crashes, or he comes into a big crash when Michael Jackson dies. And he starts, or he hears that Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. and he starts questioning you know, who he is. Hmm. And it plays on that. So it's a, it's a wow. beautiful Sheikh Jackson. And Where can you find? On Netflix. It's on Netflix. Uh, another, actually, Amr Salam also has a beautiful series on Netflix called Taya, T-A-Y-E-E. Uh, Aitan Amin, another GMM fellow, um, Villa 69 uh, is on there. Um, Amin Durra has Ghadi, G-H-A-D-I, he's a Lebanese director, on Amazon Prime. Um, so you can, and of wow. course, Nadine Labaki's movies, Caramel, Where Do We Go Now? Um, and of course, Capernaum, uh, West Beirut by Zia Dwayri, The Insult by Zia Dwayri, they're all available on streaming. Um, and I think you should check them out and see, you know, get a, a more fair, or at least how we see each other, uh, we see yeah. ourselves. That's great. Um, thank you so much for being here and talking thank you uh, about for, uh, Arab cinema. Um, this has been. I, I have an alt for earlier when we were talking about the film Beirut, and I said, "Is that about the drinking game?" Uh-huh. Can I can I pitch you? Uh, is that about the indie rock band? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, That's all I have to contribute. Well, I'm glad I, I, either one. I think 
uh, okay. works. I've been sitting on that since we uh, <laughs> since that came up like 15 <laughs> minutes ago. Um, so uh, real quick, you can find me at BattleshipRetention.com, including all my uh, the the movie uh, movie reviews that we post there. This week we reviewed The Dead Don't Die, Back to the Fatherland, and Deep Murder. I also posted a review of Wild Rose. Turned out it was a week early because they moved the release date. Anyway, that's all BattleshipRetention.com. You can email me at David at BattleshipRetention.com or follow me on Twitter at Davey Pretension. And, uh, Louie, why don't you tell us where people can find you if, if you want them to find you? Sure. Um, well, obviously, I work uh, at Film Independent, uh, but you can also find me on social media, mm-hmm. uh, Instagram and uh, Twitter. Um, but my name is very difficult to... Well, people, I've put it in the yes. name of the episode. Okay. People so, can yeah, look you down can at their phones and name. And then, uh, in addition to Film Independent, uh, group friends of filmmakers of mine from the Arab world. We are um, you know, starting this organization called Arab Media Arts Collective, um, where we're bringing Arab filmmakers together, and you know, we will, you'll hear hopefully more about us as well and our events. Great. Uh, and so, yeah, filmindependent.org. Yes. Matt, where can people find you? Uh, they choose to. Yeah, filmindependent.org. Uh, I write blogs there uh, two, three times a week. We have other contributors there. Good stuff if you're a filmmaker or just a film film lover. There's good content for you. Great. Thank you to both of you. Thanks to both of you for being here. Thank you. And thank you at home for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 